We have been working our way through the book of Acts, and today we're at part two of Saul's conversion. There's really two guys in this story at the beginning of chapter 9, this first part of Acts chapter 9. There's two men. There's, there's a man who answers God's unmistakable call on his life, and there's another guy named Saul. There's a man whose life is very, very much in jeopardy in this chapter, and there's another guy named Saul. There's a man who brings the gospel in such a way that eyes are instantly opened. And there's another guy named Saul. There's a man whose faithfulness impacts the spreading of the gospel to all of the world, to the entire future of the church. And there's another guy named Saul. Today we're going to look at both of those guys, and we're going to focus on Ananias for a little bit. Let me remind you, though, of the other guy, Saul. Last week we began to look at this first part of chapter 9, and I told you that, that Luke was a masterful director in the way that he has organized and put together his story. He is Steven Spielberg and George Lucas. He is Ron Howard, not the Opie Ron Howard, but the director Ron Howard. He is the man that, that puts it together masterfully so that we see the picture well. We see Saul early on just kind of as an observer who's watching over what's happening and, and the coats are being laid at his feet as Stephen is executed and stoned. We see him then begin to terrorize the church so that, so that we get the picture at least that the gospel is being spread because of his persecution. And then we begin to see that he's not, there was a, there was a passing reference to him ravaging the church and now we begin to see him more clearly and we already have our appetite wet to hate him. We see him as the villain, we know we know that he's the bad guy in the story. And so we're ready for him as we get to chapter 9 here. Even as chapter 9 starts, Luke starts it off by saying that Saul is still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. We know who Saul is. Saul's the villain. Saul is the bad guy. Saul is the terrorist. The words that, you, that Luke uses in Acts give us that picture. He paints the picture that Saul is a really, really bad guy. He's the terrorist. He's the one that's hunting down the Christians, finding them, banging down their doors, hauling them off to prison, or maybe even worse. Saul is the worst of the worst, we said last week. But that's not the only picture of Saul that we get in Scripture. That's the picture that Luke paints here early, at least, in Acts. But we also know that there's another, another side to Saul. He is not just the worst of the worst. He is not just a terrorist. Saul also is a man who has been dedicated and passionate about his faith. Saul has done everything that he can to grow in his faith, 
He was born in Tarsus. He was, was smart. He was probably well thought of. He was well to do. He, he early on came to Jerusalem so that he might be trained by Gamaliel. He was dedicated in doing everything he could to fill, to fulfill all of the law. He was passionate about being holy and righteous. Saul was the worst of the worst. He was the terrorist. But Saul, the Pharisee, was also the best of the best. He was so intentional about trying to do what was right and trying to follow God and the laws that he had set forth. In fact, it was because Saul was so passionate about being the best of the best that he becomes the worst of the worst. He becomes the terrorist because he believes that he is fighting for God's honor. He is casting out and arresting and killing the blasphemous, the blasphemers, so that he can declare God's honor. He's the best of the best. He's the worst of the worst. And we read about his conversion in Acts chapter 9. We're going to start in verse 1 of Acts chapter 9. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. And he asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Rise, enter into the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him, to the hand, they led him by the hand. They brought him into Damascus, and for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Who was this man? Was he a murderous, vicious, early church killer? Or was he a committed and discipled, a committed and disciplined law follower and church leader? Or was he both or neither of those things? We see here in Acts chapter 9 that Saul becomes none of those things and is radically converted and transformed. Saul struck by light, hears the words of Jesus. And Saul, we hear in Acts 22, when, when Paul retells this story, in Acts 22, he says, as he responds to Jesus, what shall I do, is the question that Paul asks in Acts chapter 22, telling the story. What shall I do? What do you want me to do, Jesus? That is his first question. And so Jesus tells him, rise, enter the city. And the picture that we left with last week was this picture of, of the man who began the journey, the worst of the worst and the best of the best. This 
law follower, vicious killer heading into Damascus now is being led, blinded, totally changed, and is led into into Damascus, not as a conquering hero, but instead as a man who cannot see and who has now come face to face with Jesus. For three days, he's without sight, and he neither eats nor drinks. He's left to contemplate the gravity of his sin and the hopefulness, to rejoice in the hopefulness of his redemption. So now, where does that leave us? Luke turns our eyes, now in verse 10, turns our eyes to another man, to another story, almost. He says in verse 10, now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise, go to, straight, go to the street called Straight, that a house of Judas looked for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who come who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which, he is, by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately, something like scales fell off of his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose, was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. We see another man here. We've seen Saul. We've seen what's happened to him. We've seen him get led into Damascus. And now Luke tells us there's another man. His name is Ananias. Ananias, just the name Ananias means God is gracious. Luke is setting us up for what's about to come. We meet a man named God is gracious, and he is given a call. Ananias, he hears the voice of Jesus. And instantly, right away, the very first thing that we see about Ananias, the very first thing that we read about Ananias is his reply, here I am, Lord, perfectly, quickly, right away. It reminds us of the other men who have responded like that in Scripture, Abraham and and Isaiah and Samuel, all men who heard the call of God and instantly, instantly replied with, here I am. I'm ready. I'm ready for whatever you have for me. That's the way Ananias responds Here I am, Lord. I'm ready. Whatever it is, I'll do it. I'm ready to go. And the Lord says to him, rise. Go to the house street, go to the street called Straight, the house of Judas, and look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. 
And instantly, you can see the picture, you know the feeling instantly, Ananias' heart drops. Yes, Lord, here I am. I'm willing to do whatever you want. I'll go anywhere that you want. I will do whatever, whatever you are calling of me. And then when he hears this, he says, Saul, I know Saul. I've heard the name Saul. I've heard the stories. In fact, we even know that he has papers where he can come and arrest anyone, anyone who is calling on the name of the Lord. Yes, I'm willing to go, but... Do you know what you're calling me to? We often reply or respond in the same way as Ananias. Yes, Lord, absolutely, here I am. What can I do? What do you want? How can I serve you? I want to serve you, and that really is the attitude of our hearts. And then, as the instructions become a little more clear to us, as the challenge becomes a little more great, we begin to have questions. Ananias has questions. In fact, as Jesus gives him his instructions, go to the house of Judas, look for a man named, of Tarsus named Saul. Behold, he's praying. He's seen that there's going to be a man named Ananias. Come and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. Ananias does not say, Jesus says, Lord, I have heard from many about this man. I have heard from many about this man, the evil that he has done. He is going to arrest me. He shows, he shows his fear. He shows his anxiousness. And the point, I think, in this, the reason why I think Luke includes it is, is one, to help us to understand what a big deal this is that Ananias is being called to. But also, I think, to give you and I comfort once in a while when we have those moments where we say, I just don't know. I understand the call that you've given to me, but do you know what you're asking? We have those moments, right? Ananias had one of those moments, but... This is Saul. Yes, I'll do it, but do you know what you're asking? Jesus gives a little more, a little more clarification. The Lord says to him in verse 15, go. Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. Go, because he is a chosen instrument of mine. He is a tool that I am going to use. And the interesting thing in this is that the Lord is saying to Ananias, I'm using you as a tool to go to another man who I'm also going to use as a tool, as an instrument to carry my name forward. He is a chosen instrument of mine. I'm going to use you, and I'm going to use him. Vastly different ways. Vastly different ways, but you are both, you are both going to be my chosen instrument. You are both going to be my tools. In one of the commentaries that I was reading this week, 
looking at this passage, one of the commentators talked quite a bit about this idea of Saul being called as a chosen instrument, as the chosen tool of God. He talked quite a bit in this commentary about the use of tools and the need for us to have the right tool for the right job. And you've had those experiences where you don't have the right tool for the right job, or at least I have. I almost always don't have the right tool for the right job. And we know the experience of what that's like. And here, God is calling Saul to be the tool that he wants to use, to declare his name, to declare his glory to Gentiles, kings, and children of Israel. But this commentator talked about the need for tools and how some tools are used in better ways than others. And I I thought this was interesting because of our context. He's talking about farmers. And he says, this is his quote, only 3% of of Americans today are farmers, and yet they feed not only all of America, but much of the world. Why is it that the American farmer can produce so much more food than farmers from other countries? This will be disappointing to you, but he says this. It is not because the American has a higher IQ or a better physique or more information about agriculture. It's not because you're smarter and better looking. He says it's it's because the American farmer has better tools. The American farmer has the John Deere tractor, whereas farmers in other countries have plows that's pulled behind mules. Farmer working with a tractor and all of his harvesting equipment that we have in America today can vastly outproduce a farmer working alone with primitive tools. God has chosen Saul to be the John Deere tractor of his harvest. He's called Saul to go to Gentiles, and not just Gentiles, but kings and the children of Israel. He has a job that Saul is being called for, a grand and glorious and huge job. But Saul's not the only one being called in this story. Saul's not the only one being used in this story. Saul's not the only instrument that God is using. One man is being called to minister and to share the name of God with a threat-breathing, murderous church killer. And one man is being called to kings and to Gentiles and to children of Israel. Both, Both are important. Both are vital characters in this story. This story does not happen without both of them. They are both chosen instruments that God has decided to use. And one of the questions that you might have as we read through this is where where does Paul come from without Ananias? Where does Paul come from without Ananias? God calls Paul to grand and glorious things. Paul is going to travel. Paul is going to become the focal point of the rest of the book of Acts. In just a couple of chapters, we're going to to begin to study Paul and look only at Paul. It's going to be the focal point of the last part of the book of Acts. His ministry 
in his travels. Paul, as you know, has written the majority of, of the New Testament. Paul is, is the one that lays the foundation for what we know and understand in the gospel. Paul is grand and glorious. The, 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 the call that God has given to Paul is grand and glorious. And he is a huge instrument in God's hands for what he is doing for his glory. And yet, where is Paul without Ananias? The work of Ananias is seemingly small, and, and if it wasn't listed here in Acts chapter 9, we probably wouldn't even know about it. This is the only place where we even see this story. Saul reference, Paul references it a little later when he's telling the story about his conversion. But it doesn't seem like what Ananias is doing is so grand and great and glorious. But the question is, where is Paul without Ananias? There's a, there's a story, and you probably maybe have heard it, that illustrates this point well. In 1855, there was a man by the name of Edward Kimball. Edward Kimball was a Sunday school teacher in a church. He had had some rambunctious teenage boys in his class, and there was one boy who was, was uh, exceedingly rambunctious. He, he, he didn't seem to understand the gospel. He was rowdy in class every day. And so Edward Kimball decided that he couldn't, he couldn't get through to this boy, this boy named Dwight. He could not get through to Dwight in Sunday school class. And so he needed to go and meet him where he was. And so Dwight had a job where he worked in a shoe store, and Edward Kimball uh, walked down to the shoe store, entered into the shoe store, and Dwight was in the back room stocking shoes, and so Edward Kimball went into the back room and began to share with Dwight about the gospel, how Jesus had made a way for him to have his sins forgiven and his life transformed. Dwight Moody, D.L. Moody, says that that was the moment in the back room of his uncle's shoe store that he came to faith. If you know the story of Dwight Moody, of D.L. Moody, he becomes a, a, a huge evangelist, travels all, over, travels all over America sharing the gospel. He even travels to Great Britain and to the, into the, to the western part of Europe. And while he's there, he's sharing the story of how God used Edward Kimball to bring him to faith. And as he's sharing that story, there's a man there by the name of Frederick Brotherton Meyer. He's a pastor. Here's the story that Dwight Moody is telling, D.L. Moody is telling about Edward Kimball, and he, he gets emotional about it. He begins to hear that and thinks that he too wants to go and have personal connections with, with people so that he might too tell the story just as Edward Kimball did to D.L. Moody. And so Meyer begins to, to, to share the story personally with people and, and also begins to grow his ministry. And in the midst of that, he, he comes to America 
And when he's in America, he's speaking in Massachusetts, and there is a, a, a young man in the crowd named J. Wilbur Chapman. J. Wilbur Chapman hears the gospel and understands it for the first time, sitting under Frederick Meyer. J. Wilbur Chapman is also a passionate man about the gospel. He begins to go and, and, and declare the gospel, sharing the stories of Jesus all over. And, and in one of the crowds, as he shares the story, there's a baseball player, a famous baseball player in the crowd. His name is Billy Sunday, if you know that name. Billy Sunday is a famous baseball player, but on that day, as he hears from J. Wilbur Chapman, understands the gospel, and he becomes saved as well. He follows, he, he leaves baseball, Billy Sunday leaves baseball, follows Chapman, and begins to take over Chapman's ministry. Billy Sunday takes over his ministry and is preaching to large crowds all over America, and there's a group of people who are in one of those crowds, and 1924, we've reached now from 1855, in 1924, there's a group of people in one of those crowds that hears the gospel and begins to understand it for the first time. And they decide that they want to band together to change their city. And so they put together a rally in Charlotte, North Carolina, where they bring in a guy by the name of Mordecai Ham. And Mordecai Ham is there in Charlotte, North Carolina to, to, to share the gospel and to reach the city. And in the midst of that, there's some boys at the high school in Charlotte, North Carolina, uh, who, who want, to be, want to be distractions. They want to go to this tent meeting so that they can, can make noise and distract everyone that's there, and they think it's going to be so funny. And so there's one boy in the high school named Billy Frank, Billy Frank decides that he wants to go just to see. He doesn't want to be a part of the trouble, but he does want to go and see what it's going to look like. And so he shows up one night in 1924 at, at or sorry, this is now in 1932, in one of these meetings with Mordecai Ham. Billy Frank listens that night as Mordecai Ham declares the gospel, and he's struck by the words that he has to say but doesn't quite understand or believe him, so decides that he will come back the second night. And Billy Frank comes back the second night, and the third night, and the fourth night. And it's on one of those nights that he comes forward and gives his life to Christ. That man, that teenager, quit going by the name Billy Frank and became Billy Graham who then, as you know, because we're in a more modern era now, goes out and shares the gospel worldwide to conservatively, people talk about 2.2 or 3 billion people that Billy Graham shares the gospel with. A family tree that starts with a man named Edward Kimball. and cycles all the way down to Billy Graham. Where, where is Billy Graham without Edward Kimball? And where is the Apostle Paul without Ananias? 
Sometimes, sometimes we're called to grand and glorious things. That's what Paul, that's what Saul is being called to here. A chosen instrument to declare God's name to Gentiles and kings and children of Israel. But sometimes what we're called to does not seem so great or grand or glorious. Sometimes what we're called to is much smaller, maybe even much more dangerous, and is just as vitally as important. Ananias responds to the call of God to be the chosen instrument that God has used to reach Saul. In fact, it says in verse 17 that as soon as as Ananias hears these instructions, he doesn't have to think about it anymore, he doesn't dwell on it anymore, he doesn't come up with any more excuses. It says in verse 17, so Ananias departed and entered the house. He did what God had called him to do and lays his hands on the man who's blind and says, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Ananias doesn't go through any kind of test. He doesn't say, are you going to arrest me if if I help you to see again? He doesn't do any of those things. He says, Brother Saul, you are a part of the family. You are a part of the family. You are now a brother. You are now a child of the king. And Saul is immediately, immediately changed. Immediately something like scales falls from his eyes. He regains his sight. He rose, was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. Scales fall off immediately. That's, that's conversion. That's our hope. This man, Saul, is no longer a vicious church killer. He's no longer the perfect law keeper. But he knows, but he knows the one who did keep the law perfectly. His conversion is complete. It's instantaneous And now, and now, Saul is a child of the king. Ananias was the chosen instrument that God used. Not in huge and great and grand and glorious ways like he's about to use Saul, who we'll see as we continue on in the book of Acts, but in much smaller, but no less important of a way. Where's Saul? Where's Paul without Ananias? I would say God, God can do, God does, God would do, God could call anyone else to do that, but he called Ananias. God's, God is gracious and used him and used his faithfulness to help, to help bring sight, to help bring conversion to Saul. We're going to continue to look at the story of Saul, the conversion of Saul as he, as he changes, as he becomes this chosen instrument that God has used. We'll even see those stories of how he uses him to declare his name to Gentiles and kings 
and the children of Israel as we continue on in the book of Acts. The worship team is going to come. They're going to lead us this morning as we sing and declare and worship our great God this morning, the one who orchestrates all things together, who sovereignly chooses the tools and the instruments that he is going to use to declare his glory. Will you stand with me as we worship together this morning? this morning comes from Revelation chapter 1. It says, To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him 
be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Thank you.